I just thank God for a praise team that sings us right into his presence. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking at a host of core convictions and trying to let those inform uh, our personal lives and even uh, our, our decisions and uh, as a denomination that are upon us uh, in a wide variety of ways, we want to live according to these core convictions. First of all, that the best is God is with us, that Jesus is Lord, that the Bible rules, that God transforms people, that sanctification takes saints, it takes one another being in the process together. And this morning, uh, the, the sixth, and I don't know if it's the final of these convictions, it's just the sixth that first came to me, uh, but, but this one I think is absolutely critical, and it's that disciples go. Disciples go. He went. It's etched in Latin on a wall in the catacombs where Christians met for worship and many who were secretly Christians were, were buried. There's a little etching of a, of, a, of a ship, a sailing ship just above it. And in Latin, those two words, he went. We don't know his name. That is his entire epitaph. And someone thought it sufficient. He went. He went. Why, why would that be sufficient to, to sum up a life lived with purpose? I only know that story because uh, a friend of mine who was a, a staff member for Bill Henson, and we both worked for the same guy, admired him very much. When Bill passed away, he wrote his memoir, and, and that was the title of the book, He Went. He went. An epitaph for faithfulness today and an epitaph, a summary of faithfulness almost 2,000 years ago. Why would that be the case? Let me tell you, it's the case because we as Christians, individually and corporately, live as a people in mission. It's not optional. It's not peripheral. It's integral to who we are and who we're called to be. Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, all authority has been given me in heaven and earth. And because Jesus is Lord then, the next words out of his mouth to his disciples were, go therefore. Go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, all ethnos, all kinds of people baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. It is integral, a core conviction about who we are as believers in Christ that we are go people. We're go people. He went then. Is perhaps a, a beautiful epitaph for those who have been faithful. We call it the Great Commission, and there's actually two mandates in Scripture that are maybe paramount. One is the Great Commandment. You, you know that one. They asked him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And he gave them two. 
I love Jesus, never boxed in. He, 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 but, but, but really, they're one, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as your... Another way Jesus put it is, they will know that you are disciples of mine when you love one another as I have loved you. The characteristic of what a disciple is, is one that loves like Jesus, that lives like Jesus, okay? That's a description of who we are. And the great commission is like the great commandment in that it gives us our DNA for what we do. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, the key phrase in that commandment or that commission is not go. Going something we do that supports the main verb in that passage, which is make disciples. So our thing is, our mission is to make disciples. And in making disciples, we go. Or someone has said, as you go, make disciples. Okay? Go, make disciples. The baptizing, the teaching to observe, and the partnership with the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always. All those are components of the making of disciples but the key business it's our mission because it was first Christ's mission I have come to seek and to save the lost to give my life a ransom for many because it was his mission it's now our mission and in every one of the gospels when it gets to the end and Jesus kind of sums up the passing of the baton we have those two elements put together one is the making of disciples and the other one is going everywhere and teaching them everything (laughs) going and making disciples let's look at it in some of those other gospels just real quick uh Matthew says, go make disciples but he also mentions the holy spirit which empowers that lo I am with you always right John says, as the Father sent me, going, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And as soon as he said that, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Mark says that they went everywhere, the Lord working with them in signs and wonders. Okay, went everywhere, they're going, and the Lord's going with them. Luke Luke maybe sums it up best, not in his gospel, but actually in the continuation of his gospel in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power. Power for what? What is God hooking up this locomotive of power to? What's it for? That you might be my witnesses, where? Wherever you go, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, into the outermost parts of the world. And the the first disciples took that so seriously. In the first generation of those that had that commandment to follow it, they took the gospel, we think today, historically, perhaps all the way from England to India. England to India, just in the lifespan of the disciples, the apostles that followed. 
we know from the book of Acts that it at least got from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and it ended up at Rome, the heart of the world at that time, from which if it infects that place, it goes everywhere throughout the arteries of the world. That was the story that the book of Acts tells, how this mission took root by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit. One of the purposes of the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit does in a person's life. Uh, we looked at that in 1 Thessalonians, that the Holy Spirit was given us to make us holy, right? It works within us to set us apart, to give us the characteristics of Christ so that we are a tool useful for God, leaving his fingerprint in the world as we live out our life. It's, it's something that God does in us. But the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus' command, even more so than is emphasized what God does in you, is what God's wanting to do through you. That we would become disciples, first of all. It's hard to make a disciple if you ain't one to start with. It's hard to give away what you ain't got. What's a disciple? Someone who loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. One who loves one another even as Christ has loved us. That defines what it means to be a disciple. And making a disciple means giving that life away from God, partnered with God, with, with others in the world around us. Making disciples, that mission is not something that is uh, an if-we-can-get-around-to-it thing. The truth of the matter is, if we neglect that mission... Even who we are gets warped and neglected. John Ortberg called them the mission, the life-saving societies. He came upon their, their, their story in a museum on the banks of Boston. And it was a story that goes back to the, the 1800s, I believe. And the people who lived along the shores of those rocky coasts at that time had finally had enough. Ships and storms would break up on the rocks just offshore, and within the hearing of their drowning cries, people listened from shore as others lost their lives at sea. And we don't know who it was, but maybe it was the heart of the whole community. They decided something had to be done. And so they created from volunteers, just folks who shared the concern, who felt the calling in their own heart, little huddles along that shoreline, and they were called life-saving societies. And they built a little hut, and they put a little boat in it with oars, and some life-saving equipment, some uh, life vests and ropes and uh, buoys to throw to someone in distress, some rudimentary... Uh, first aid tools, wasn't anything fancy. But from the time that there were hundreds of people every year that lost their lives on the shoreline of, of, of New England until the life-saving societies took root. And after they did, there was not a single life lost on those shores for decades. Because whenever the cry would go out, People who owned that calling would gather their own life-saving boat, 
go out into the waters, found those that were jumping off ship or the ship was coming apart, risking their own lives, they would drag them into those life-saving boats and get them back to shore and to life. In fact, they were so committed, they realized what was at stake. They were so committed to saving the lives of others that they had a motto that later, when the professionals took over, the Coast Guard, they adopted as their own. And the motto was this, you have to go out, you don't have to return. You have to go out, you don't have to return. But what would it be like to be someone on one of those ships that's perishing? To know that there's someone on the shoreline that's taken that oath. It would mean the difference between despair and hope. Probably between life and death. That someone had cared enough to take that oath and, and not just serve it in word, but serve it with their own lives. I don't have to return, but I do have to go out. Many who were of the life-saving societies would give their lives saving the lives of others. But no one for decades that was on one of those boats that capsized near the shore lost their life. They were life-saving societies until the professionals came along. The Coast Guard was invented, and once the Coast Guard was invented, the, the volunteers left it to the professionals. Well, they can handle it. They, they've had the training. They've got all the uh, tools. And my friends in the church, we've often been guilty of the same thing. Well, you know, they have the seminary training. They've got the tools. They can tell the stories. They know the scriptures. They can handle it. If someone in my life needs the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, I'll take them to my preacher. But the life-saving societies still exist in Boston. They just don't go out anymore. They mostly have banquets. Celebrations where they give away awards to people who could be guilty of an act of kindness in the community. Do the parallels persist with the church of today? He went. What will we risk to still be in that mission? Who will know the connection that we offer because we were willing to brave whatever the obstacles were to get life to them? Why, why do we sell tickets to a Valentine's events in packets of fours instead of twos? Why do we go to Belize and to Honduras and to China and to India? Why do we go to Aspen Creek? Why? Because we don't have to return, we have to go out. 
We own this mission. And we could own it even more. And when, when we cease to be engaged in the mission, something changes even about our own society. We just have banquets. We, we, we give away awards, but we, we've lost the potency of being those who actually give life, saving life to others because we can give him away. I think our mission is still integral to who we are. We're still called to make disciples. When our church, our brand of church, Methodism Church, really flourished, it was actually growing at a rate of 14,000%. It was something to behold between the years of 1776, basically the War of Independence, and the Civil War, 1850, in those 75 or so years, Methodists grew from a little huddle of 8,600 people in America to 1.2 million. The only way we had to get around was on horseback. But the circuit riders would commonly not live, before, live longer than the age of 30 because of their exposure to the elements. Yet they would meet up on the way. As they went from house to house and from town to town and from hamlet to hamlet as our country expanded westward, they went with it because that's where the people were. They went out. People still need the Lord. But the same, for the same reason that Methodists flourished, I wonder if it's not the same reason that Methodism today withers. In 1968, we unified with a, another already existing church. Two life-saving societies combined our numbers. And friends, that was the last time in any year that the United Methodist Church has grown. 1968. Since that time, every year, we've not only saved fewer lives, we've retained fewer lives. We're diffused in a diversity of so many good things. It's even hard to find a motto. But we do have a motto, and that is to make disciples to transform the world. Making disciples that transform the world. We've got the motto right. But are we simply absorbed with the banquets? As we approached 1850, that growth slowed down somewhat. Class meetings, getting together in, in little huddles where we watched over one another with love and held each other accountable to grow as disciples, they went from being required to being optional in America, according to the discipline from those days. And then they went from being optional to really being exceptional. The life-saving huts along the shore were abandoned. And, and yet, God calls us in our mission to go and make disciples of all people. 
And at the end of the book, in, in, in Revelation, uh, Revelation 7, he gives us a picture of what faithfulness to that will look like. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lord. A beautiful picture of that commission fulfilled. Go therefore, baptizing, uh, making disciples of all ethnicities, of all people groups. We're a people that are called to go. Called to grow, go now as we were called to go then. It was Jesus' vision. I mean, it was John's vision in Revelation. It was Jesus' great obsession. I love the way Jesus lived this out in his own life. In Mark chapter 1, about verse 35, Jesus has gotten up early in the day and and has gone to a lonely place to pray. And as as if he is gone to get his his marching orders from his commander-in-chief, when Peter comes looking for him, it's interesting the language he uses. Peter comes up to Jesus. Jesus just had an amazing ministry there in in a certain town in in Galilee. I think it may have been Capernaum. And things are bustling. Things are going on there. And Peter comes up to him and he says, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. We're waiting for you to come do your thing back at our town. Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, I'm not going back to that town. I'm going on to other towns because that is why I was sent out. Do you understand that sometimes our everyone can get really hyper-focused? When God always has on his heart everyone. And so God continues to call us to go. And I'm not just talking about going overseas or going on a mission trip. I'm talking being the kind of person that is on the go for God wherever we're going. We have an eye to hearts that are hurting. We have an eye to people who are longing for the wholeness that that God gives and that God promises. That's why we do love revolutions. That's why we do home teams, to huddle together and making disciples and living it out together. That's why we have a youth and a children's ministry. Why? Because we want to make disciples, fully devoted disciples of these and future generations. Amen. We scatter well and we hope to gather well because if we don't, if we don't do both, if we, if we go out and touch people's lives, but we don't have a disciple incubator to bring them to, how will they grow up in the things of God? If, if, we, if we only have an incubator to bring them to, but we never bring them in, we're a life-saving society on the wane. It, it takes both of those things. It takes both doing church well when we're gathered and church well when we're scattered. It means living on mission with God. And if we cease to do both, we miss the fruitfulness of making disciples. 
as, as many of you know, the United Methodist denomination is, is, is polarized and torn right now, largely over the, the, uh, um, the what do they call it, the symptom. The, the, the thing that's the presenting symptom is over differences about uh, our understanding of human sexuality and what God calls us to. Our, our, our church is, is divided. It's a divide that exists in our society, but it's also within the church that, that uh, those who value truth uh, see a different truth to champion. Truth as they see it um, would require them to um, advocate for homosexual practices and to defend those civil rights as a justice issue and to promote same-sex marriages. And others within this same church are conflicted by that. They see that as a, as a conflict w- with the gospel, that that's not what God calls us to. That's how I see it. That God calls us to give this wholeness that is changing all of us as sanctified sinners to offer that same grace to one another to pull in the same direction away from our sin and and toward God's uh, purposes in our lives and and one of the reasons that I think is is driving this separation is, is is because of the difficulty it creates in our understanding of our mission which is highly important to us. How can we be a part of the same team and be pulling 180 degrees in different directions? How do we reconcile that? It's equivalent almost to uh, our AA group that meets here at the church deciding that they're not going to meet at the church anymore. They're going to meet at the local bar at happy, happy hour. Would that send different messages? Would, would that be confusing to the guy who's coming in seeking sobriety, seeking wholeness, realizing that his life is unmanageable and out of control and he needs to turn it over to other management? H- how is it that we can be uh, so polarized in our core convictions? Some of us believe the Bible rules. Others of us believe the Bible informs. Some of us believe that Jesus is Lord. Others of us believe that Jesus is a way, but certainly we shouldn't offend other ways. How is it that core convictions this deep in who we are and what we're called to do, what is that doing to us? Let let me tell you in part, our, our Global Church meets in a general conference every four years, and since the early 1980s, the number one news element in every one of those general conferences was not Africa University, the first university that was ever indigenously created on the continent of Africa, that United Methodists around the world came together to build. That was not, that was not the issue. No malaria was not the issue. We've almost wiped out single-handedly, uh, as, as a church, malaria across the continent of Africa. But, but, but that wasn't talked about. Yeah, those are, those are good things, I would think. Meanwhile, 
United Methodism, Methodism overseas as we have retreated and diminished by over 4 million here in the United States, in Korea, in Africa, in the Philippines, the global church has increased by 5 million. So as, as the church embraces its mission, the number one newsworthy thing that's publicized is the politicization, politicalization, you know the word I'm trying to come up with, uh, 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 of, of, our, of our denomination. We, we've been in conflict over this for so long, and not just this, but all those other core convictions that have us going in different directions to the point that our mission has become uh, stymied in the conflict. I've served on the Conference Evangelism Committee for the last five years. I've been the chair of that committee. I just gave it up because I decided it was completely futile. It was almost impossible to come up with an idea for our major mission, making disciples in the world, that could appeal to more than 30 or 40% of our conference at a time. About the only thing that we could do because it was so uh, open-ended was inviting people into the church at, at, at uh, Christmas time. Woo. Great idea. That's the best we can come up with for a life-saving venture. I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken. I, I, I would rather work in my own local church where there's enough consistency of who we feel called to be that we can actually get some things done. Paul and Barnabas came to a, a point where their mission that they had been doing together, they were the first missionary sent up by the church from Antioch. They came to a point after that first missionary journey that Paul turns to Barnabas and says, hey, let's go back and strengthen those churches that we started and start some more. And Barnabas had a great idea. Let's take along John Mark, my cousin. And Paul says, John Mark. You mean the John Mark that went with us on the first missionary journey until he got so far away from home, he either got home, he, he bailed on us? That John Mark? And Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, said, yeah, that John Mark. God cares about him too. And Paul said, you don't think God cares about the mission too? This is the guy we're going to depend upon? Are you kidding me? He's already proven what he's made of. Barnabas. And, 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 the, and there, there arose among them such an argument, such a conflict, that they went nowhere. They were in Antioch arguing it. Until finally, they were willing to put the conflict behind them. And Barnabas said, I'll take John Mark, and I'll go back to Cyprus where we're from. He didn't desert us there. He was in the mission up until that point. We'll, we'll go back to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and started out in the other direction, going west to his hometown, Tarsus, and then back to the other churches. And when he got to all the churches he had started, he then went farther into Greece and, then, in Greece and uh, Corinth and, all, and then came, came back, if I remember right. The mission went on even though the conflict was not resolved. 
Was that the right thing to do? What are the fruits of that? The fruits of that was that Paul, on his missionary journey, came across a guy named Timothy. And he was so willing to go with Paul whatever it took. As a grown man, he started with circumcision. Now that's commitment. Silas went with Paul on this journey. Silas was made of the kind of stuff that he would stick with Paul even when he was being beaten with rods. It was Silas that was in the prison at Philippi, and he was leading the group in songs that night in the depths of the prison. And a great shaking came, and their shackles fell off, and the gates fell open, and the guy that was on the outside that was guarding them was sure that they were gone. He fell to his knees knowing that he had neglected his task, his watch, and he would soon be killed, only to hear a voice from inside say, hey, we're still here, don't sweat it. That's Buskirk paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. And that man who saw the earth tremble and God intervene to save Paul and Silas fell to his knees and said, brothers, what must I do to be saved? Not just me, me and my whole household. This stuff's real. This stuff's real. And if it, 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 it will keep you in this circumstance, it'll keep me and my family, I'm in. But what would have happened if they hadn't gone? What would have they happened if they, they had said, you know, we're willing to be disciples, just short of the beatings? You know, what if Michelangelo had said, I don't do ceilings? What if, what, what if Moses would have said, I don't do deserts? There, there, there is a, a tenacity about being in mission for God. And, it, and it's not just optional. It's something that has to be part of who we are. Or, 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 or we, we bend, we fail, we wither in the process and under the difficulty of trying to be true to God even when those circumstances which cause us to sacrifice, which cause us to, to and, and that really reveals the great God that we serve. God calls us into this mission. And if necessary, I would think not to compromise that mission. You know, I, I could get excited about being freed up to be enough of the same mind in the church that for a while, at least, we pull together in the same direction as we seek to redeem ourselves and redeem the world around us. What might happen then if we got out of Antioch? I can get excited about that. I'm actually more excited about that than the, as a possibility than anything I've ever experienced in the Methodist church. Released in mission. Freed from conflict. Freed for something. Freed for fruitfulness, for effectiveness. And, and, and both ended up being fruitful. Both, 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 and I don't know that this applies, but, but Paul was fruitful in that he found Timothy, and God blessed that. Barnabas was fruitful in that John Mark actually had a character-shifting experience. John Mark was probably that guy that was... Uh, wrapped up in a, 
in a bed cloak that night that he followed Jesus out to the garden of, of Gethsemane with the other disciples. And when the, when the soldiers came, there was one who had the bed sheet ripped off of him and he ran away naked. We don't know who that was. It's only in the Gospel of Mark. Everybody thinks it's probably him, though he won't confess it. John Mark had been a runner from day one. But not so in the end. In the end, Paul himself says, make sure that John Mark comes to me and come before winter because he is useful to me. Make sure that he brings the parchments because he's the kind of guy I can count on now. God did something in his life too when the mission was clarified. And, and, and the mission, but, but if we don't go, we never learn. If we don't risk that difficulty, if we don't risk that uncertainty, if we don't get out of our comfort zones, then maybe we'll also miss the shaking power of God's shackle-breaking, disciple-making power to us. And I, I, for one, whatever it takes, I, I don't want to miss that. And, and I, I, don't, I don't want us as a church to miss that. But Paul actually, with Timothy, that one that he did pick up on the way, over and over again in his letters to Timothy, he calls him his spiritual son. He, he encourages him to be strong in the grace of our Lord. In fact, if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, there, there's an image that he uses over and over again to shore up timid Timothy in boldness as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it's this, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A good soldier of Christ Jesus. A soldier. That, that, that's one that's given to obedience. Even obedience sometimes that he can't fully understand or explain. He knows the nature of the mission is such that, that his obedience and his faithfulness is his greatest gift to his commander. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Well, what's he saying? That, that we're alert, that we're responsive to the commands of our commander-in-chief, who is whom? Jesus is Lord, Right? He, we, we don't get entangled in, in so many things, things of life, things that are good, but we, but, but we stay free enough of that, all the stuff that could absorb us, all the living of the American dream, all, all the stuff that is uh, American ABC kind of stuff. We, we, we are going to intentionally free ourselves of some of that absorption that, that we might be dedicated to be on mission with God. And we do that disentangling for the sake of pleasing the one who enlisted us. In, in the Roman army, it was called the sacramentum. The sacramentum. The one who enlisted you would not allow you into the army until you first took the oath. The sacramentum where you pledged your loyalty to the emperor with your life and even unto death. Whatever it costs, may it be said of us and me at the end of the day, when God called, we went.
when there were so many good things to do, there was one thing that we would not let, hold, let go of, and that was this call to be about making disciples. Unity has its place. Jesus prayed for our unity. John chapter 17. Jesus said, may, may they be one, Father, as you and I are one. Correct? Unity matters. But before Jesus prayed for our unity, he prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. Unity that's not based on that truth, unity that does not anchor itself in the commander-in-chief is not a unity worth saving. I'm amazed at how, how, how patient God is with the church that says, this is my word, this is what I've called you to do. Take some time with that and get back to me on whether or not you feel good about it. I tell you, here's what I've commanded you to do. Why don't y'all put that to a vote and we'll go with the majority. Why, why, I, this, is, this is what I command and this is what I expect, but you know, send a delegate with a secret ballot. No need for you to step out. And, and volunteer in this army. You, you, you just send a secret delegate somewhere, someone, you, you don't have to stand up and be counted. No, just no sacramentum required here. I think God wants us to have a clear identity and a clear mission. I think he, I think he wants us to be recommitted to a global impact. I, I think he wants us to be a go people, not just going around the world and going to different ethnicities, but instead of harboring ourselves away from the reality that homosexuality is a growing uh, thing in our society, I, I think God calls us to go to rescue the perishing. To, to, to offer someone who's caught in an understanding that that is all that they are, that their sexual expression somehow defines who they are, that they are so much more than just that to start with, even there, that they are a person that's been dignified by the gift of life and by the love of God that will not abandon them. That we would be a people that go so as to seek to engage with our acceptance of them as persons, with our affirmation of them as friends, with the invitation to be fellow sinners overcoming our sinfulness and being sanctified by the power of Christ that we share with one another. I think God calls us to affirm their larger identity. Say, we struggle too. Come and struggle with us towards God. That we would be people that would listen to understand before we listen to condemn. That we would communicate their value. That they are worthy of service and of sacrifice and of loyalty over the long haul. As well as in the moment. That we'd read the Bible together. That we'd seek God together. That we would worship together. And we would trust God to transform us all. 
that we would offer support in repentance and in recovery, just as we do everyone within the church, that all of us are called. All of us. The call to holiness is fully inclusive for every whosoever who would believe. God calls us to be a go people, not just to wait for a few agreeable people who may have be seeking God and wondering if repentance is the right way and they happen to show up in our church. That'd be great. And I want to welcome and love and call into holiness all of those who might do that. That would be fantastic. But almost every one of us, every one of us in this place knows someone in our family, knows some friend that struggles with that. Is that not true? If if that's true for you, would you just raise a hand where you are this morning? You know somebody. We're not not talking uh, theoretically. There are people to love and people to save and people to see redeemed. There are people to give hope. There are people to give the truth where... They're shackled to a lie. We've got to be willing to have the risky conversations that no matter how forcefully we are attacked, we still love with strength. We've got to be able to take rods and still sing His praises from the prison. We've got to trust His power not only to free us, but to free all around us. God has called us To be nothing less than his church and mission, disciples making disciples that transform his world with his goodness. I I hope today you, you hear the call of your own soul. I hope you hear the voice of your commander in chief. And maybe he's not saying something soft this morning. Maybe he's saying, you don't have to return. You just have to go. Whatever's at stake, if it's pensions and property, go. Whatever is at stake, if it's the contentment and and the peace of a household, There's a life at stake here. There's God's blessing and opening plan that that could be embraced or could be forfeited. There's too much at stake to remain silent. There's too much at at stake to to play it safe. In our church, we have a ministry. We We don't just speak this stuff. We have those who have come out of the homosexual lifestyle. Those who are are willing to counsel those who struggle with it and help them find the same victory that they found. And if, if if you know of anyone with that kind of struggle that would be open to an alternative possibility, would you throw them a lifeline? Would you tell them about this ministry at our church? I've watched homosexual friends believe the lie and come apart on the rocks 
I've watched that happen in my own extended family. I had a favorite cousin that disappeared in the Keys and we never heard from him again. And I, I wish I'd have been old enough. And that pain that I'm feeling right now, so many of us share. Isn't it time for us to be bold about the transforming power of God, the rescuing arms of God that await us all? Let's be a life society, life-saving society again. Lord, give us the boldness. Give us the strength that we need with one another in order to offer this life to others and not be alone in it. Give us lives transformed in our midst that others who lack that hope could find that hope in lives that are being transformed right here today. God, make our lives so open, so transparent that others might find this same hope. God, you've called us to be a mission people. And today we renew our commitment as your soldiers. You are our commander-in-chief. We don't care who is pleased or displeased in this world. We live to please you. So speak clearly to us. Give us the strength and boldness to be faithful. And once again, Lord God, as we risk it, would you shake this earth would you break the shackles? Would you help knees fall around us to find the life-giving Savior? Brothers, what must I do to be saved? Make us a life-saving station, Father. Make us lifesavers. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if that's in your heart, I invite you to your feet to sing it with your praise as we close with this song.